Chapter 5 The Hezbollah War Museum Back in Beirut, I got to know some more people at the Meshmosh Hotel. For instance, there was an American marine insurance rep who said he lived in Hong Kong and his wife was Moroccan, a multicultural household if ever there was one. The American said that he went to a war museum run by Hezbollah, the powerful Iranian-backed political come paramilitary organization, which has members in the Lebanese parliament and two cabinet ministers. Hezbollah also runs a militia that many say is more powerful than the actual Lebanese army. Hezbollah used to be very extreme in its early days and was clearly identified with the most militant wing of Shiite branch of Islam as personified by the Ayatollah Khomeini. More than 30 years on Hezbollah is thought to be more moderate, though it remains heavily armed and, in recent years, took an active part in the fight against ISIS. The American guy said that he saw a lot of captured Israeli weapons at the Hezbollah War Museum. He had to pay to get in and complained to us that Hezbollah was still a registered terrorist organization in his own country, which is true, so he felt bad about dropping money in the box. Back at the hotel I also met Dimitri, a Greek guy who left at the beginning of the civil war as his father had lost his job and everything. Most of Lebanon's Orthodox Greeks still live there, however. The American planned to spend another three days driving around Lebanon and had room in the car for anyone else who was keen. I asked Dimitri whether he wanted to go, and we all agreed to set off together. I describe some of the place we went to further on below. The American was brash and really opinionated. Dimitri and I wondered how he'd managed not to get into some kind of trouble with the Hezbollah. That was our only reservation about the tour. Meanwhile, I made sure to visit all the mosques and churches in downtown Beirut. The new Sunni mosque had the women's prayer area in the main part of the mosque. In the old mosque the woman had to look at the main area via a television screen. So, things are obviously changing. When we got to Baalbek, I wanted to go inside the beautiful Shiite mosque there but wasn't able to as it was a Friday, the equivalent of a Christian Sunday, of course, and strictly for the actual congregation on that day. Trooping down to the Hezbollah War Museum my GPS didn't work in Lebanon, and it was a good thing Dimitri had come along as he was able to speak Arabic and was able to ask the villagers for directions. I suppose we could have bought an old-fashioned paper map somewhere, but you rely on technology these days and then when it doesn't work you are left to your own devices. There were supposed to be 10,000 United Nations peacekeepers in Lebanon still. But we didn't see any blue helmets anywhere in the borderlands, and Dimitri, the only one in the car with local knowledge, seemed to be quite nervous about that. Dimitri and I went to the Hezbollah War Museum, the tourist landmark of the resistance, which is near the village of Mlita, just under 20 kilometers from the Israeli border. In the disturbed days of the civil war and its aftermath, Israel occupied these southern borderlands and turned Beaufort Castle, which is also in this region, into a modern army fort. In my blog, I talk about that, that in my first post on Lebanon. As I discovered when I visited Tyre, the subject of the next chapter, Lebanese people often prefer to call Israel Palestine, the historic name for the whole region south of Lebanon. However, in view of the potential for hopeless confusion that might otherwise arise when discussing regional conflicts, I will stick to calling Israel by its chosen name here. Mlit was slightly outside the 1982-2000 occupation zone, most of which lay between the western section of the Litany River and the Israeli border. The PLO, Hamas, and other Palestinian organizations need to be distinguished from Hezbollah, which is Lebanese. 
These organizations are divided by religious confession and also by ethnic distinctions invisible to most Westerners, who fail to realize that the Arab peoples are in fact almost as diverse as the inhabitants of Europe. Hezbollah is a Lebanese organization that is also associated with Shia Islam. The PLO is Palestinian and secular. Hamas is Palestinian and Sunni. From the 1960s until 1982, there was a strong PLO presence in southern Lebanon, and from 1976 until 2005 the Syrian army was also an occupying force, until a revolt by the Lebanese, the Cedar Revolution, forced it to leave. The Israeli occupation of southern Lebanon, which was fully in force from 1982 to 2000, was largely undertaken in response to Syrian and PLO activity, which included the firing of rockets into Israel. Hezbollah gradually took shape with the aim of getting the Israelis out of Lebanon. Dimitri and I interviewed a spokesperson for Hezbollah named Musa. It was interesting getting a Hezbollah view of Israel. Musa said that Hezbollah had destroyed at least 130 Israeli Merkava tanks during a later conflict in 2006. The Israelis apparently concede the loss or temporary disablement of 52 Merkavas in that war. Either way, Hezbollah were generally able to inflict more damage than Arab guerrillas had been capable of hitherto. An elaborate defensive system of tunnels was developed, from which Hezbollah fighters would pop up, shoot at Israeli targets, and then vanish underground. Musa said that the aim of all this was to keep the Israelis from permanently occupying or colonizing the southern Lebanese borderlands in the way that they had done with the Golan Heights and parts of the Palestinian West Bank. To keep the Israelis out, Hezbollah had had to become a more serious military force than the old-time PLO. He insisted that Hezbollah's military purpose was primarily a defensive one, to keep the Israelis out of South Lebanon by making the costs of any future occupation too high. I've got a video recording of the interview on my blog, in one of three posts on Lebanon that I put up in 2018. The Hezbollah Museum was indeed full of captured Israeli weapons and also some old ones that had belonged to Hezbollah. It was opened in 2010, on the 10th anniversary of the Israeli departure from the area, in a ceremony attended by representatives of the Lebanese government and the left-wing American intellectual Noam Chomsky. Later on, in Israel, I ran into an ex-Israeli soldier in Tiberias, i.e., Galilee, who had fought in the area of Beaufort and Melita. He was pretty amazed that I'd been to South Lebanon even though it's quiet these days, more or less, and for the time being. There was supposed to be a United Nations presence in the border region, to help stop Israel and Hezbollah coming to blows. But I never saw any UN troops at Beaufort, or for that matter anywhere else near the border. The ex-Israeli officer I spoke to in Tiberias practically jumped when I mentioned that point. As I mentioned in Chapter 4, the Lebanese government doesn't really control the Bekaa Valley in the east, either. I did see lots of Lebanese army soldiers in Beirut, checking for car bombs and things like that. But it's a valid question to ask whether the Lebanese armed forces have any other role. Or are they just Beirut traffic cops? Well, the short answer is that the official Lebanese military have indeed quite often played second or third fiddle to Muslim and Christian militias and the Israelis. During the civil war the government armed forces almost ceased to exist, as the troops defected to one side or the other. Since the civil war, the United States and other Western powers have tried to build up the official armed forces once again, partly as a counter to Iran and the Islamists, and partly also in the hope that it will make Lebanon into more of a normal country, of the sort where you know who's in charge. All the same, 
In November 2019 the Trump administration surprised everyone by cutting off military aid to the Lebanese government for reasons that are unclear. Only to unfreeze it again in December. Gosh, I appreciate the rights to a quiet life that we have back home. You have no idea. A tomb for the living. It was after I'd been to the museum that I visited Beaufort Castle. From Beaufort you can see the road to Damascus and the Golan Heights, clearly a strategic spot, every bit as much today as in Crusader times. There's a book about the Israeli occupation of Beaufort Castle. It's Beaufort, a novel, by Ron Lashem. The characters in the book spend a lot of time sitting around the castle and being bored, thinking how much more fun they could be having back in Tel Aviv. Their boredom is punctuated, as always in these sorts of stories, by short intervals of terror on the odd occasion that something actually happens. In terms of military history, there's obviously a lot of the same old same old in these parts. Pretty much every strategic valley and pass has been the site of repeated battles from biblical times to the present day. The sites of old battles remain the potential sites of new ones in the Levant, as the easternmost shore of the Mediterranean is known in its totality, from Hattai to Gaza. The Lebanese-American poet Khalil Gibran, who I'll have a bit more to say about below, wrote a line about the dead preparing the world to become a tomb for the living, and that very much applies to a part of the world where new battles are fought in the old locations. When will Beaufort be just a tourist fort like the Quebec Citadel and Fort Ticonderoga near the nowadays undefended U.S.-Canadian frontier, or like all those historic forts that still dot the line, similarly, between Germany and France?